Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Good morning, friends. Happy Palm Sunday. Thank you, Chris, for reading our passage today from Luke. There are actually four scriptures uh, for me to choose from for this sermon, including the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, (laughs) not just a section, but the whole thing. Um, So I decided to leave that for a much more capable and perhaps (laughs) long-winded preacher. And I chose this passage in Luke, which is maybe the most kind of obvious choice for today. There are so many biblical themes and promises that come together in this story, revealing more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And before I really get started, I'll say that I owe some inspiration and a few shamelessly plagiarized points uh, from Tim Keller and N.T. Wright and a couple of other pastors. And I don't think they'd mind because wisdom about Jesus is wisdom that is meant to be shared. But I'll give credit where credit is due. This passage is fitting because it tells the story that we celebrate today, the story of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the day that kicks off the holiest and most central week in the Christian calendar and Christian history, Jesus's last week of life on earth, as well as the beginning of the next chapter, a new covenant between God and his people. So before we get started, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather together to celebrate you, what you have done. Thank you for this week, for the chance to to honor you, to walk in your footsteps. The gift that you gave us is undeserved. It It is incredible. We can hardly grasp it. I ask that today you would open our eyes, help us see you more clearly so we can follow you better. Amen. So this is a single week of Jesus' life, but there's a lot written about it for good reason. Uh, In the book of John, the story starts in chapter 12 of 20, so eight chapters. It's chapter 21 of 28 in Matthew, chapter 11 of 16 in Mark, and 19 of 24 in Luke, which is in Luke more than a fifth of the book. The Gospels spend a lot of time on this final week, and they spend a lot of time on this day. Luke, in particular, writes, emphasizing and revealing Jesus' role as Messiah, as king. So today we'll look at two ways that Jesus declares his kingship and two things about the kind of king that he is. Jesus' first claim to kingship comes in the context of growing tension. This text is introducing us to a crisis that has kind of flown under the radar. It's bubbling throughout the gospel, but it's starting to make itself known here. Barely a chapter before, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus comes across a blind man who is begging, hears the crowd passing by, and when he learns who they're following, he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. He shouts this out twice ignoring the rebukes of the crowd who tell him to be quiet. 
And Jesus hears him saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And he answers, yes, what would you have me do for you? The blind man asks for healing and Jesus grants it. Why is this significant? It's because the blind man identifies Jesus as the son of David. Everyone knew that the title son of David referred to the messianic king that had been predicted for centuries. The Messiah that would come to fulfill the promise of deliverance for the Jews, the ultimate king. This is the first time in Luke that Jesus is clearly given this messianic title and publicly answers to it and then performs a miracle confirming it. This turn of events would have been thrilling and terrifying for the disciples, I think. The disciples from the beginning had wanted Jesus to declare himself as king. They wanted him to openly accept this title and this role because they knew it belonged to him. They knew about his power, they had seen what he could do. But to publicly proclaim it, for Jesus to say, yes, I am the Messiah, the deliverer, that puts a target on his back. He has to prevail against the authorities who categorically reject his kingship, not wanting to lose, lose their own, or he has to fall to them. He has to triumph or fail. So imagine how the disciples must have felt hearing Jesus answer yes to the title Son of David, getting chills knowing that the rabbi they have chosen to follow is truly the Messiah, and he's on his way to Jerusalem in a final sprint to the top, and they're affiliated with him, for better or worse. And many of the people in the region, not just Jesus' followers, but all around, are chafing under the rule of Rome. There's political tension and instability, and it's on the rise. Around 70 AD, a couple years later, there's actually a series of uprisings that kicked off the first Jewish-Roman war. Jesus is riding that tide as it's beginning to swell, and he's just made a really dangerous move. So that's where we start. We know that Jesus, coming to the, coming to the city, he already has a claim on the throne under his belt when he comes in view of Jerusalem. He is accompanied by probably hundreds or more other pilgrims who are traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. The celebration that memorializes the Hebrew exodus from Egypt, the liberation from slavery at the hands of Pharaoh. It recalls the deliverance of God, sparing his faithful people from the forces of destruction that swept through Egypt, but passed over the households with the blood of the lamb over their door. This is a festival of great rejoicing and of great hope that they will see the liberation of God once again. So this is what these pilgrims are coming to celebrate in this city, in their holiest city where the temple is. They've climbed thousands of feet of elevation from Jericho, and Jerusalem is now visible from the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane also is. And here's the second act that declares his kingship. Jesus' triumphal approach and entrance into Jerusalem. The interesting piece to me is that Jesus carefully arranges this entrance. 
Reading this text before, I kind of had the idea that all of this happens to Jesus. Like he just looks around like, oh wow, thanks everyone. I'm speechless, you didn't have to do this. And that kind of fits with the, the idea of a, a humble Lord. And he is humble, but he is not self-deprecating. He's honest about who he is, without arrogance or pretension. So Jesus sets this in motion all by himself, because he is being honest and because he's making a point. He's specific about the details. Go here, you will find a colt tied there, it will never have been ridden. Say this, untie it, and bring it to me. The gospel writers are famously concise, but Luke spends seven verses describing how Jesus stages this entrance. He sends two of the disciples to the villages of Bethany and Bethphage to find this colt. These villages would have been pretty well known to Jesus. Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his good friends, as we know from the other gospels, even though they don't play a huge part in Luke. And truly, if there was a group of people who really believed that Jesus was Lord, it would be these villagers, the neighbors and friends of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. They have experienced Jesus' power. They knew who he was. They knew him well enough that his sudden demand for a cult and the simple explanation would go unquestioned. Tell them that the Lord needs it. Okay. So Jesus arranges to ride up to the city, through and with an adoring crowd, making as big of an entrance as possible. And putting myself in the shoes of the disciples, I can just imagine how the air was alive with excitement. The disciples and the rest of the followers praising God joyfully with a loud voice Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They're singing and shouting, throwing off their cloaks and laying them on the ground so the feet of the colt won't even touch the dirt. They treat Jesus like royalty, as he deserves. And among the, the gospels, Luke is uniquely focused on showing that Jesus is the king, the fulfillment of messianic expectations. The other gospels do this in their own way, of course, but one thing that stays consistent with the others is that they all record that hymn of praise as blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke is the only gospel that clarifies and says blessed is the king. This just serves to underline that Jesus is proclaiming his kingship as loudly and obviously and undeniably as possible in the face of the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. And this is the first thing we learn about the kind of king that Jesus is. He's the king who confronts. Humble though he is to his core, Jesus comes to the saying, comes to the city saying, essentially, crown me or kill me. There is no in-between. He is a king or he is a liar, a lunatic or a fraud. But if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, and we look at the promises he makes, his offer of salvation, peace, new life, 
If we feel the weight of death, evil, injustice crushing down on us and we want that freedom, we must accept and trust Jesus as king. The power of Jesus is not magic. Prayer is not a magic wand we can wave at a bad situation and just see it solved. The power of Jesus is kingly power. And it doesn't work unless we step into a life lived under Jesus' reign. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as he comes to us and says, unless I'm king, I'm nothing. I'm not savior, unless I'm king, I'm not helper, unless I'm king, I'm not brother, unless I'm king, I'm not liberator, unless I am king to you. The options are obedience and trust, or rejection. This is the confrontational nature of Jesus' kingship. And this is the offer he is setting before Jerusalem, the people and the authorities there. It is confrontational and it is dangerous and Jesus knows it. And all of this is to us and to the disciples, certainly. They are feeling that it is all edgy and nerve-wracking and probably exciting. Jesus is taking the reins. Jesus is finally acting like the king the way they think he should, doing what they expect the Messiah to do. Because up until this point, Jesus has been pretty ambiguous about his kingship. Every time the disciples start to say, come on, let's take power, you can take over, you can raise the dead, you can still the storm, you can defeat the Romans. Truly. Jesus, though, makes enigmatic statements about his glory, but also his suffering and his trials and his death, which is not super encouraging. So they're happy, they're happy finally. Finally he's doing something right, he's acting like a king. But instead of getting a horse or a chariot or something grand to showcase his power, Jesus chooses a young foal, a donkey's colt. Instead of riding into the city in the style of the victorious, conquering, royal Roman generals and kings and governors, Jesus chooses a donkey, which is not a very kingly steed. Servants ride donkeys. Disciples are standing around like, okay, this is, this is better. I mean, he's trying. We might have to hire a PR manager when we get to Jerusalem, but he, I mean, he doesn't have the instincts for this conquering stuff, sending kind of a mixed message. But Jesus knew what he was doing. His riding the donkey echoes the arrival of the Messiah depicted in a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Matthew, this passage is quoted, Look, your king comes to you gentle. In the ancient world, donkeys were used for ceremonial purposes. Horses were symbols of war, and donkeys were symbols of peace, often used to enact treaties, kind of like waving a white flag. How fitting, then, that Jesus would choose a donkey 
to carry him into the city to enact a new covenant, a new treaty between God and his people. How fitting that this Messiah, who so intimately understands the suffering of the world, the struggle against sin and death, sees an opportunity for peace, for restoration and reconciliation. And this is the second sign of the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the king who consoles. The king who confronts, courageous, throwing down the gauntlet, setting the stage for the final act, but who willingly rides towards what he already knows will end in his death for the sake of a world who desperately needs hope, new life, consolation. He is the king who consoles. And I want to be very clear here that this consolation is not the consolation of empty platitudes or hollow sympathy. The Greek word that is translated into consolation is parakaleo, which literally means to come alongside. The forms of this word in English become console, comfort, encourage, counsel, advocate. There is presence in the act of consolation showing up to walk alongside a sufferer. And there is strength in the act of consolation, not in just showing up, but in shouldering those burdens. There is an expectation not just of comfort, but of action. The Messiah was long anticipated to be the consolation of Israel. And many in Israel thought that the Messiah would bring them that consolation would be political, national freedom. But the consolation that Jesus brought was better than any short-lived political freedom. He comes and consoles with a real and lasting hope. And the disciples cannot fathom the scope of this kingdom that Jesus is claiming, the freedom that Jesus is making available. They were waiting for Jesus' victory over Rome, and they did not imagine a greater victory, a victory over sin and the death that it brings. The victory of death was its finality. It was the end, separation from God. The victory that Jesus brings is the victory over death, and it is eternity. The victory is resurrection, new life, forgiveness. Death is defeated in Christ, not because it doesn't still happen, but because it is no longer final. And one day, it will no longer exist. So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and his kingship and consolation are rejected, he weeps. This is the only other time in the Gospels that we are explicitly told about Jesus' tears. And not just tears, but sobs, mourning. The other time is before he raises Lazarus, when he witnesses the grief of Lazarus' community and sees the toll that death takes. And this time, Jesus weeps for a city that will not crown him, but will kill him choosing a path, a path not of peace, but of conflict, of worldly power. 
and he weeps, perhaps for the abstract metaphorical missed opportunity, and perhaps more literally for the destruction of the temple and city in 70 AD. He weeps for a world that he loves, that is caught in the grips of sin, and will face the consequences. And I would be remiss here not to recognize that the words that Jesus utters in these verses are words of judgment and warning. And these moments in scripture make me uncomfortable, make all of us uncomfortable. Judgment is not pleasant, not to think about, to talk about. And I think that's because we have seen it so often done badly in this world by humans, and partly because there is part of it, that is, there is suffering involved. But judgment from a righteous, loving God is a confrontation of sin, of evil, of injustice, of death. It is a righting of wrongs, ultimately an alleviation of suffering all within the boundless reality of grace. That is the judgment that we can await eagerly. Because this grace is boundless, and it is available, and it is real, because of what Jesus does. It is no coincidence that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem coincides with the celebration of Passover. He offers himself as the Passover lamb, a symbol of liberation, and now means by which freedom is available to us. And this day, the day of his triumphal entry, we can celebrate as a triumph. Even though his death looks like failure a couple of days later, there is a greater triumph that comes. And this is the day that the Passover lamb comes as an offering of peace, arriving on the back of a donkey to the location of God's decisive action in the world where salvation breaks forth and is offered to us. Thank you for listening to the Missio Dei Uptown podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.